Hey everybody, St. Paul here, and it's a special edition of Music on the Run. It's our one year anniversary. Woohoo! Before we get started here, do me a favor. Wherever you got this podcast, make sure you subscribe, give us a rating, and if you have time and like what you're hearing, make sure you write a review. It really helps us get the word out so we can have a lot more people coming to the party. Hey everybody, I'm St. Paul Peterson. Prince gave me that nickname, and I've been lucky enough to tour with people like the Steve Miller Band, Kenny Loggins, Peter Frampton, Donny Osmond, to name a few. And when I'm not playing music, I love to run. And this is a podcast about how we stay healthy on the road, physically, mentally, and with our families. Welcome to Music on the Run. Hey, everybody. It's your host, St. Paul Peterson here. Welcome to our very special first anniversary episode of Music on the Run. I cannot believe that it's been a year already. Man, alive. Have we had some fun and some unbelievable guests. We come a long way in one year. And in some aspects, yes, it has flown by. In some other aspects, I've been kind of locked down here in the the family basement for a little while due to COVID. But you know what? We took advantage of that because usually, you know, we started this out to be able to do interviews in person. And that's what I love. I love that interaction. And, you know, you can't quite get that over Zoom. But I got to say that Zoom has opened up, at least the interviews via Zoom, they've opened up a whole world to music on the runs as far as guests are concerned and we've been very very lucky to interview people from all over the world really um it's been an interesting interesting uh transition to that but you know you guys have stuck with us and we appreciate that and uh we aren't going anywhere we're still establishing ourselves uh we're proud of what we've created And I'll tell you one thing, that I could not have ever, ever done what we're doing here on Music on the Run without the Music on the Run team. And before we start looking back at our year in review, it's time to honor the guys who put this all together. I certainly could never, ever do any of this by myself. So let me introduce the uh, three gentlemen who have been uh, just incredible over this past year. My producer, Davide Razo, uh, our editor, Ivan Sevastianov, and our social media and Funk Friday fellow, as we say, Jake Miller. Welcome, fellas. How you guys hey, doing? how's it going? There he is. There's Ivan. Hello. What's going on? Are you there, Davide? I am here, yes. Good, good, good. Welcome, and let me just start off by saying thank you. Davide, I recall you and I, you and I have been friends for quite a few years, and you were the one who were, you were cattle prodding me going, hey, you know what? You should really do a show interviewing people, and you and I were buddies running, you know, obviously musical buddies, but... You're the one who said, we should really do this. I'm like, nah, that sounds like a lot of work. I don't want to do all this. And you said, I'll help. Yep. I said, okay, 
I'm not, I can't do this without you. So I've learned to delegate and thank God for that. Davide, give me your thoughts. First of all, you, I want to talk to you. Give, give me your thoughts on Music on the Run our first year. Wow, it's, it's been a roller coaster because we started talking about uh, last year in probably February. And like you said, first, I don't know about it. Mm-hmm. I don't know. And then all of a sudden, like in May, you said, hey, you know what? Uh, you should you should look into it. What, what does it take to do this podcast? And so we talked about it and we went full on. And um, yeah, for, for me, it was like uh, stepping on Steve Miller's tour bus. That was like... Episode one, okay. or episode two, actually, but <laughs> and that was the uh, one of my first encounters with actually um, uh, uh, famous people, and so uh, for me it was like, how are they gonna be? What? How do I need to behave? You know how? And quickly I learned like, just be yourself. They're gonna be their, themselves, right? And. As soon as I stepped on that tour bus with uh, Steve Miller, he started talking about Tour de France, which was going on right there. And I was right in my element as well. So, um, so we you know went what? From, I got to bring this up, though. Yeah. <laughs> we stepped on that tour bus, and this was before we had the rest of the team with us. So we're sitting there with two iPhone cameras on the bus trying to rig this thing together and not really knowing what we were doing. And I remember talking with Steve for over an hour because he was so generous with our time and come to find out that I did not press record on one of the iPhones. Thus, we have a one-camera shoot. Uh, Yvonne, I'm sure you appreciated that. (laughs) Looking at that, yes, I can make an improvement on this. I'm sorry, Davide, so I totally interrupted you, but I had to throw that in there. But yeah, so we started with a bang, right? Uh, Interviewing Steve Miller and then... uh, uh, I think the Bacon Brothers episode came right away too, taping that. And that was the second brush of like meeting famous, famous people. Uh, and again, like Kevin was like, just, just a dude, yeah. you know, um, it, it was great. So... Um, so we we started taping all these episodes, uh, Simbad and uh, Eric Hutchinson, the the Sidrons, and then uh, um, we launched in December the first episode with yeah. you, right? Yeah, we collected a few first, didn't we? Oh yeah, uh, and then uh, this year it was like March came. And that that put us a little bit in the, like, okay, so nobody's coming to Minneapolis now. What are we going to do? And thanks to Zoom, I guess, uh, it opened up a different door to us. Yeah, closed one, but another one opened. And then what they always say. Yeah. I mean, really, that's, that's what happened. And you so, as my producer had to stick and move and figure out a way to keep this interesting and help me with different aspects of how we make the transition to a non-in-person interview and i think you did a a great job with that 
Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Hey, do you have a favorite episode, Davide? I do. Um, actually, I, I should take like the whole NAM experience. Uh, for me, that was the highlight so far. Going out to NAM. I know we've, we've been going for years out there. I, I've been going for years with you. Explain never, what NAM is to the people who don't know what that uh, is. Th- that it's the National... Uh, Association of Music Merchants. Yes. I'll help you so out here. It's, <laughs> it's a huge convention, right? Uh, and uh, we, we got hired by uh, Electro Voice, um, our beautiful people here in Minneapolis. That's right. And uh, so to do these live podcasts uh, in their booth, and uh, we did four of them. Uh, Victor Wooten, uh, Vince Wilbur Jr., uh, Lenny Castro, and Nathan East. Yeah. So those, those interviews were great, but if I could pick one out of those four, I think I had to go with Lenny, Lenny Castro from Toto. Yeah. He's the funniest guy and it's just was just just wonderful it's like uh, if if you haven't seen it you 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 need to go to youtube and look for that episode and and watch it it's out there so it was a a great great interview with lenny castro there davide i just want to publicly just say thank you to you for the extraordinary effort you've put forth and uh, I, I just I could have never done this without you. Would you do me a, a favor and introduce Yvonne, please? And, and uh, I think I want you sure. to do that instead of me. Okay. <laughs> all right. Well, um, to do all these video productions, uh, we hired one of the best. Uh, Ivan Sovastyanov, uh, he's been a, a student. He's graduating now. Uh, in December, in a couple of weeks, right, Ivan? Yeah, and, exactly. Uh, <laughs> uh, he has done a fantastic job. He's taking uh, suggestions. He's coming up with his own suggestions, uh, how to make this look. I don't give much um, guidance on how to cut it because I'm not a professional in video production. I'm a professional in audio production, but... Uh, even has taken this really to up there. So, uh, Ivan Sovastianov, everyone. Thank you very much. Uh, one of the best is a good statement, but it's a little bit too much, I think, for me. Uh, but, um, yeah, basically, it was very fun all over this year. I really loved editing this podcast. I really loved when we had the ability to actually film them physically before the COVID hit. That was very a big part of the music on the run for me, at least actually coming in, filming this podcast, setting up the lights, setting up the cameras, which I really love to do because I'm in digital video media production. Um, but overall, I really quite enjoy this show. Uh, I'm really happy that I'm working on this show together and meeting this whole awesome people that I can learn so much from, especially in the musical part, because being a video kid, I can't really learn too much about the music since I don't have it implemented into my program. So it's very cool. Um, on different aspects of the industry that I never knew before or some interesting aspects about sports related stuff as well because music on the run is not only the uh, music kind of side of the industry but as well the sport and health related 
uh, aspects of uh, life of the people. Uh, but speaking about the favorite podcasts and what I really loved about doing all these years, uh, for sure, I really loved the Sinbad podcast. It was amazing. Uh, very funny, very uh, outstanding. While I was at it, just having, I was having the hilarious time. Uh, it was just super fun, super, uh, super genius. Very, very genius. It was very interesting to listen to Sinbad and uh, uh, see, share his thoughts about different stuff. Uh, but in terms of implementation of our video production, actually, and setting up cool lights and everything else, it was actually the Bacon Brothers episode. I think this was the first time when we actually started to set up professional lightning, professional camera setup, and we were actually more ready for actual visual podcast rather than the actual sound podcast, which I was happy because I saw that we actually are moving in the direction of making the video podcast a little better. So that was very, I was very happy uh, overall for that. Uh, but generally, I really enjoyed this this year, and I think it's going to be really, uh, we really have so much more ahead of us, especially considering that we're slowly getting out of this COVID zone and we can actually start filming, especially uh, the last, I think, episode that we filmed physically was the Peterson Family Podcast, which was very fun, again, uh, to shoot and set up the lights for. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to um, having all of this industry coming back together, you know, and actually filming the podcast in real life. So, Ivan, thank you so much for all the hard work you've put into this. It's just been... Uh fun to see you grow as a videographer and an editor and uh, just working together to make this the best podcast that it can be. And you have gone out of your way and I can't, I mean, if we would add up the amount of hours that you've spent cutting video, uh, I wouldn't even want to do that. Uh, but I just want to say publicly thank you to you. You've been an incredible part of the motor team. You're going to continue on with us for a little while after you graduate. Uh, by the way, everybody, he's going to the Institute of Production and Recording, uh, IPR for, I think it's called Creative Arts in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I used to teach there quite a few years ago, and he's part of the video program. But we are so proud of everything that you've done, Yvonne, and we are honored that uh, you're going to stay on with us for a little while. And hopefully we get to do some more in-person interviews if all goes well. And uh, just want to say thank you, thank you. And thanks to your family, too, for letting us have a huge chunk of your time. We sure appreciate them as well. Thank you very much for taking me in and giving me yeah. the opportunity. Yeah, it's fun to have you. And we cannot forget about Jake, who came in later. Jake Miller, everybody. Jake is a student at St. Thomas here in, uh, is that in St. Paul or is that in Minneapolis, Jake? There's a couple of locations. The main campus is in St. Paul. So Jake, tell us exactly what, what, all the jobs that you have with Music on the Run so everybody knows. <laughs> yeah, so um, I kind of came in a little later, like Paul said, and um, we, I mean, I guess I kind of had to figure out uh, as I went just how I wanted to, uh, I guess, keep myself busy and, and keep, keep uh, putting things out there social media wise. So um, on that note, I've kind of, I've been helping out with social media um, mm. and doing a lot of like just kind of different marketing, uh, promotional ideas. Um, I've been doing, uh, I, when I first started, I did a lot more of kind of like these little animations and stuff. Um, it's been hard to have as much time to do that kind of stuff now. Uh, but like over the summer I was getting, uh, it, it's, it's been fantastic to just like experiment with different ways that people want to engage with different posts and stuff like that. And um, just been getting so much different, uh, 
different perspective on, on kind of like how to actually get these, how to actually reach this, an audience um, for something like this. And it's, and like, I, I've been um, just trying to kind of find the best way to, I guess, implement like a modern approach into like kind of trying to target a fan base that's kind of more from uh, earlier generation. And that's what are you trying that, to say, man? Oh, I'm just trying to say that. <laughs> that was the most politically correct way to say, it. I'm trying to reach some old folks here, baby. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's, <laughs> you know, it's true. And it, and it, it, it is it's, true. It's, and it, but it, but it's a blast to figure out. And it's awesome. Just like getting to know like this community. And then all, Paul, there's all the people that, you know, that I get to kind of work with through you, just like doing the funk Fridays and stuff like that. It's just been unbelievable, and it's just been an awesome experience. So, well, let's yeah. talk a little bit about Funk Freddy. You came up with this while I was in New York doing my last concert of the year at the Iridium. You, you were like, "Hey, why don't you do a weekly like Funk Friday thing?" I'm like, "Sounds like a lot of work to me. What are we gonna do?" <laughs> so, and and and, and off sounds it went. familiar. Oh yeah, <laughs> but you know what? And it's a great idea. I, we're never too old to learn, and he wanted to try this, and I'm like, okay, let's just do this because he's recommending that. We, you know, you when you are trying to lead the band here, you want to give some of your band members uh, the responsibility to come up with great ideas, and and uh, this was a great idea. We are 38 episodes into Funk Friday now, and. I'll tell you, that's been one, and it was to drive people okay. over to the Music on the Run podcast, which I think you've done a great I job doing. Um, it's been so much fun to show the playing side of Music on the Run as well as the we interview side here. of Music on the Run. So thank you for coming up with that concept. Do you want to come clean and tell me who exactly came up with that concept, though, Jim? <laughs> well... I came up with the idea to do Funk Friday. However, my sister was the one who I was talking to her. She runs some social media uh, for her job. And I was like, man, what do you yeah. do to just like keep people engaged? Like, what, or how do you even know what to post? Like, how, like I want to post a few times a week. What do I even do for that? She goes, just pick a day and just make a day, make a day and, and just make that a special thing. And I was like, Paul does funk and Friday is a day. So funk Friday, let's see what he, <laughs> see if he likes it. <laughs> and I remember actually, um, you had a video on Instagram of you and Sinbad like jamming out. And it was one of your top videos on there for a while. And I was like, well, this is what people want to see. They want to see him playing music and just like, right. just jamming out for a minute, you know, and just make it really short and sweet and just give them one thing every week. And, and yeah, but yes, my, I have to credit my sister. Very happy. <laughs> <laughs> well, Great job. You know, everything that you've seen on social media is not me. That's Jake. He's branded this. He's uh, really developed the audience. And thanks to him, we've got more viewership and listenership. Is that a word? It is now if it wasn't before. And so I just want to say publicly, thank you for your time and the passion and your dedication and Everybody, all you guys have always shown up on time. You've always met deadlines. It's just been incredible. And, and Jake, you're graduating from St. Thomas in the spring. Is that correct? Yes, correct. All right. Yep. Jake's going to stay on for a little while, just up until he graduates, and then we got to let him fly. But uh, thank you again. And to my entire Motor Music on a Run team, 
I cannot thank you enough. This has been an incredible year. This is something I never thought that I would do. And you guys inspired me to keep going. And, you know, it's not always easy. You know, we always want things to, to go smoothly, and they don't. And I'll tell you what, you guys have always shown up, come to the party, been problem solvers. And I look forward to see what happens, especially in the future, the bright future of Yvonne and Jake. And, of course, my longstanding buddy, Davide, you and I will always hang, no matter whether we've got a podcast or not. We just need to put our running shoes on and just go for a run. And go, baby. Gentlemen, thank you so much. Hey, I think it's time to start looking at some clips. All right, let's get right to it. This first clip is uh, Victor Wooten, and he's talking about his approach to education. Check it out. You had pointed out that you say music is another language. Well, that's that's the way I look at it. Right. Um, because if you think about what a language does, right, all the rules or the non-rules or, or the characteristics of what a language does, you realize music does the same thing or can do the same thing. Um, and, and I usually say that because I've been asked to become a teacher. I get asked to teach a lot of workshops right. and things and I wanted to do like Reggie does, make it easy for you. And I realized, at, at the risk of offending anybody, especially teachers, I realized that many of us teach in a way that makes it difficult for people. So how so? Because I, I think this is brilliant, the, the way you've explained this in the past, but people need to hear this. Well, a lot of the times in music, we say that you have to learn a lot of rules first right. before you can play. Mm-hmm. And we accept that. You got to know what note it is before you can learn how to use it. And you got to know scales. That just slows you down, right? So if you turn it into a language question, think about you have a little baby, right? And you say, well, I can't talk to you until you learn your alphabet. <laughs> you got to know your vowels, sometimes why. Right, Some, right. You know, you got to learn how to spell. And then, then we can talk. And plus, you're a beginner, so I can't talk to you. I'm a professional. You, you know, right. you got to talk to other beginners. So you beginners. put in the barriers right away. Right. Here. We okay. do that. We do that. And, and we tell the, the beginners that they're wrong. Like, if you're teaching them a C major scale and they play a C sharp, they're wrong. Right. And you, when you're learning rules in the beginning, you're going to be more wrong than you are right. Right. So you're hearing over and over that you're wrong, you're going to quit. That doesn't make it fun at all. Not at all. So think about a baby learning a language. Right. Do they ever know they're a beginner? No. Do you ever Mm-mm. tell them you're a beginner? Do you make them practice? Here's your <laughs> vowels for today. You don't let you don't get to learn the whole alphabet. Like we don't teach kids all the notes. You only get to use the ones I tell you. That's right. But in language, you learn all. By the time you've been talking a bunch of years, you start learning the alphabet. You learn them all. We don't say right. here's the right ones. These are the wrong ones. Like I don't like X. I don't want to use an X that much. But it's still, I have to learn it, right? Right. We don't use Z, Q, and all, but we still learn it. Right. Right? But in music, if we're in a certain key, you got to use these notes. The other ones are wrong. So how do we change the thinking on that as we approach education? From the then? top down. Okay. So is it more immersion, or is it more a philosophy change? How'd you learn to play? Through osmosis, man. My brothers and sisters, they just made me play. Bingo. They didn't make me play. I they, wanted to play. Exactly, because they were doing it. Right. So you surround a student with people who love it. Right. Put the student in the middle. Don't tell the student that they're a beginner. Do not correct the student when they're wrong. Hmm. And just let them play. Is this 
part of how you uh, uh, conduct the, your your camps. Absolutely. So tell me a little. So if for those of you who don't know, Victor is celebrating his twenty first year of Wooten Woods. Is that correct? Sure. Sure, I've run music camps. Yeah, please tell these guys a little bit about uh, what you do down there. Yeah, yeah. The easiest way to find out about it is just to go to my website, victorwooten.com, or if you want to go directly, uh, well, from the website, my website, you can find the campsite, or you can go directly there, which is vixcamps.com. But it's V-I-X camps, so V-I-X-C-A-M-P-S, and you can get to the website, and we run camps. Uh, April through October, a different camp every month, different topics. We started with just bass players. Okay. And here's what Reggie, here's what I learned from Reggie. Reggie is a teacher that can access your strengths really quickly. Even okay. strengths you didn't even know you had. And that's where he starts. Hmm. He starts with what you're already good at. The same way we do with babies learning a language. We don't tell them, well, you're not speaking true English, so I... I can't listen to you or I can't talk to you. Right. We learn the baby's way of communicating, right? Your parents know what every sound is you make, right? So we accept their way, right. knowing they're going to learn our way later. So we accept their way as right. So in music, Reggie does the same thing. Whatever sound you can make, he'll put on a drum machine, he'll start playing chords, he'll start singing, and he'll make that sound. Doesn't matter what instrument, what the sound is. He'll provide context to the sound, okay. and all of a sudden you're musical. Doesn't have to be right. Right. Right? Music doesn't have to be right. Music just has to be, or the, the instrument, the sound doesn't have to be right. It just has to be put into a context. Hmm. You know, like my brother Joseph said, you can, you know, you can hit a table, cough, <coughs> whatever. Yeah. Out of context, that doesn't make sense. But put it in the context. <coughs> right. <coughs> All of a sudden, you got <laughs> the got whole crowd yeah. because you start hearing the context, not the individual note. But we teach individual notes, and they have to be right before we can put them in the context. That's backwards. Right. So you, it yeah. sounds to me like you remove the constraints. As much as possible. Okay. Because the student usually comes to you with some constraints Okay. that they've already learned. And so the goal is to try some to break deprogramming that. in there. Right, right, exactly, exactly. I need deprogramming sometimes. Can you, we all get in our own heads, don't we? Yeah, that's, yeah. Especially uh, adults, as we start to pay more attention to what we think others are thinking about us. But isn't that the truth, yeah. man? It's like, oh, I, I wonder. I wonder if I played that note right. I know Victor's out there. Oh, darn. Right. And then you get all in that, and, and exactly. you, the head game starts happening, and then you lose right. who you are and why Victor or whomever is there. Bingo. In the first place, they're here to hear you as an individual. Bingo, bingo. Right. Our next clip is with Ben and Leo Sidron, and Ben talks a little bit about his time with Miles Davis. Check it out. People say Miles is tough. He's not tough. He just doesn't like bullshit. Mm -hmm. And if you come at him, you know, with bullshit, you won't last a second. He said, but you're mm -hmm. not going to have any problem. Sure, no problem. And it was fantastic, man. I went out to, to Miles' house in Malibu with Tommy. Tommy came oh, out there with me. Is that right? Yeah. Tommy's in total. And I have to tell you something. Yeah. Uh, I'll tell you the story, but then there's a kicker. So we go out there. We knock on the door. Door opens. There's Miles, man. And Miles... You know, his skin was like burnished. He was a little guy yeah. and he had no fat on him. And his skin was burnished. And I had this impression that it was burnished from all the attention mm. he had gotten from other people staring at him. It was like polished. Yeah. Polished. Yeah. 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 
So anyway, he gave Tommy a hug, and then he gave me a hug. And then he said, come on in. Really? Yeah, and then he made lunch. He cooked lunch. He took mm-hmm. us through his house. He, uh, we, and then at one point, a couple hours into it, he said, so, so you want to interview me, huh? I said, yeah, Miles, I do. He said, okay, man, let's go. And we sat down, and we Believe talked, that. and it was just sweet. It was sweet. Mm-hmm. You know, there was no, it, it was what Tommy said. You know, if you just show up and be yourself, that was the message of Miles. But here's the kicker I want to tell you. On the way home from Miles' house in Malibu, right. we stopped at Pat Raines' house, I who lived have, down, yeah. down the street. And we sat there, and Pat was on the phone with Dave Sanborn, and Dave Sanborn needed a keyboard player. And I got on the phone with David that same night, and I said, I know your keyboard player, man. His name is Ricky Peterson. I know who your that keyboard player is. That was the same night as the Miles, Miles interview. interview. I never yeah. knew that. Yeah. It was coming coming back from Miles' house. We stopped at Pat's place. And uh, I don't know, you know, a month later, Ricky was playing with David. This next clip is great bassist Nathan East talking a little about work ethic. Check it out. And I just have good examples of, of uh, people with such great uh, work ethics. Clapton, you know, he's... he's uh, Again, you know, I look at his level of energy, and and uh, he just doesn't stop. And when he plays, he doesn't leave anything. He doesn't leave anything. You know, it's like full on. You know, and, and we we laugh because then sometimes you get, he'll have a blister. <laughs> and uh, you know, we were in Japan um, a few months ago, and, and he had a blister on the finger that he has to do that lick for "Wonderful Tonight." You know, so break out the super glue. Like I thought. So, so that lick is like he bend it up like three notes or something, and and those little strings on the so he, he you know this big blood blister, and I was thinking so we were playing the tune, and I thought oh hey he's he's re- rearranging that melody a little bit, but then I realized you know <laughs> it was it was like it was pain, pain. every was note pain. and I'm blood is flying everywhere, so uh, you know people go to a concert you don't realize what these are kind of the behind the scenes issues that, that are taking place and they're real man this next clip. Uh, is Lenny Castro, the great percussionist that we talked to at the NAMM show. And usually he's with Toto, but he talks a little bit about being able to have the freedom to tour with some other folks. So you weren't necessarily <laughs> in the actual No, band. I was you not assigned. I was okay. not assigned uh, partner. I was not a signed member. But you, I mean, so that's a different... That's a different kind of a thing for you, be acting as a side man, but, but you were still in the brotherhood. Mm-hmm. Was that a positive move for you, do you think? Do you read? Well, I, at first, you know, I, I got really bugged about it. Okay. You know, and I actually went through some depression about it, you know, no especially kidding. on the road, you know, they'd go out and do signings, and I'd be in the hotel by myself, you know, got whatever, it. and they'd get taken to dinners by the record company, and I wouldn't be invited, and other things like that. So it took, it, it kind of took a little bit of toll on me mentally. Okay. But then one day after I came back from a Stevie Wonder tour, I went to Jeff's house and I was like raving. I said, man, I'm, I was out Stevie, man. We played, I played all my favorite songs. And, yeah. I don't, and, and Jeff just looked at me and said, yeah, who cares? <laughs> and why is that? Well, you know, he looked at me and he says, you know what? I can't do what you do. I'm chained down to record companies and managers. I can't fly around and do shit freely like you do. So you had the freedom to do that. Now, now for those so, people who aren't in the music business right. or listening, when you get signed to a record deal, 
you have to get permission to do all these other Well, there's a, there's a whole chain of command that yeah. you have to go through. You know, can I do, you know, you have to record companies, managers, I mean, whoever else is involved. Yeah, I mean, you literally, yeah. there's a, and lawyers, <laughs> and, and the whole bit. Not so, to mention, yeah. yeah. So, but you, you had the freedom, and at that point, did you start yeah. to change your mind about then, it? Then bit? I started realizing, you know what? Jeff's trying to tell me that I'm in a good place. Yeah, because... The, because, you know, yeah. I didn't, anything that happened to the band, either bad or good, would have to happen, would happen to me too. Well, exactly. I mean, yeah. there was. So I was kind of exempt from that, you know, since I wasn't a, yeah. a Isn't member. Isn't that interesting how things work? And I, you out know, like I that. went out with a lot of, I went out, when they weren't working, I was gone. Like, who did you get to play with? Tell us a few names because oh. you played with everybody. You got to give us some. Some idea here. Okay, let me give you an idea. So, <laughs> How about Fleetwood Mac? How was that? Yeah, that was great. That was fun. I did the, the dance tour with them, which, which turned into a DVD, which was really nice. Um, Mick Fleetwood is a special kind of guy, let me tell you. <laughs> he's large. He's, he's, <laughs> he's so funny, man. He, he is funny. I used to have to, it was he's, basically babysitting him on stage. He'd, he'd forget his own beat. Yeah, and then and then I'd be on the congas and he'd be looking at me, you know, you know, deer in the headlights, and then I'd, I'd go pogo pogo to go and then he'd go, thank you. <laughs> you know, I mean, I love Mick, but he's not one of you know, he's not a Dave Weckl, he's not one of those you know extremely well-educated drummer type guys, but he's a natural guy. He's a guy Boy, that just has a natural groove that he does, and that's what he does. You want to know what's really funny about that is that I have, a, I have my own band called St. Paul and the Minneapolis yeah. Funk All-Stars, and we were coming back from a tour in Australia, and we stopped in Maui, and we played mixed clubs. Did you play his club? We, we played his club, <laughs> but we had two drummers, Mick and my buddy Joey Finger. <coughs> oh, Joey, and, yeah. And Joey, so it was, a, it was fan-friggin-tastic. Hi, it Joey was, Fingers. Yeah, Joey, he, you missed him. He was here two, two days ago at oh. them. But uh, it was fantastic because Mick was doing... Mick. Yeah. And Joey was doing Joey, and it was funky, man. So yeah, it was yeah, really yeah. fun. Ricky was on that, that, yeah, that yeah. gig as well. I had the opportunity to talk with my great old buddy, Donny Osmond. In this clip, he talks a little bit about his relationship with the song Puppy Love. Take it away, Donny. You are with me. What am I thinking? You are actually with me. Well, tell me, we, did I we were, was I did I have fun? We had a, <laughs> it was during the Soldier of Love tour, and we were in New Jersey. I I can't remember the theater. Red Bank, the Count Basie Theater, I think it was Count Basie. So um, we were doing the show, and everybody kept yelling, "Sing Poppy Love, Sing Poppy Love," and All that right. just really irked me. And you knew how much it was irking me because the music we were giving them was anything but what I did in the past. So finally, right. I turned around to you, since you were my music director, and uh, I said, stop. And you stopped the band. I don't know if you remember this moment, but I said, I walked up to you, I said, guys, give me a heavy metal version of Puppy Love. <laughs> <laughs> and, and everybody started laughing, and you go, -na 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 -na, and I hit the floor, and they call it Puppy Love, and I'm hitting the floor. <laughs> Right, I do remember that. It was fantastic. I do remember that. We were loving it. We were laughing, and every, some people in the audience were obligatorily laughing. Right. Because, because right. after the show, you guys were in the bus, and I was the last one to get out, and I walked out of the stage door, and this fan stopped me. And she said, why did you make fun of Puppy Love? 
I said, mm-hmm. well, it's my song. I can do whatever I want to with it. And <laughs> Right. Right. And then she said something that stopped me in my tracks, Paul. She said, you may have had a hit with that song, but that song was a big part of my childhood memories, and you have no right to mess with my memories. Ooh. So See, when, they serve a purpose. So when you right? say schlock, yeah, maybe at a period of time in my life, I look back and say, that's schlock. You know, some of the songs were just average, but it did serve a purpose. And so what I've been able to do in my life is now embrace every single one of those albums, including Disco Train. In fact, in the new show, I'll make sure that I have Disco Train ready if somebody asks for it. And I'll do an amazing version of that song. I had the opportunity to interview my buddy, Corey Wong, who's in the group Wolfpack and the Fearless Flyers and has a great solo career. This is how he got the opportunity to join the band Wolfpack. Take it away, Corey. Explain a little bit about the Wolfpack gig. And if you guys don't know who that is, go to Spotify or wherever you get your music. Go check them out because they're they're an entity unto themselves. They're they're incredible. So explain to me how that happened. Sure. I was playing, you know, for people that aren't uh, familiar, there's a club called Bunkers in Minneapolis. There's a, a band called Dr. Mambo's Combo that's been doing a gig for 30, 30 years. Some, yeah, 35 years, yeah. something like that. And, you know, Prince would come and hang out there. And some of the, you know, a lot of the band was Prince alumni, that sort of thing. And the guitarist, Billy Franzi, had rotator tater cuff surgery because he had a bowling incident. <laughs> <laughs> We'll stop and acknowledge that. So I was subbing for him for maybe six months. Wow. I don't remember. Something like that because he was recovering. And I was hanging out there already a lot sitting in. And I would sub for him once in a while before that. But while he was gone, that was a time when some of the other cats from Wolfpack were in town playing for another artist. They came, hung out. That's where I met them. And eventually we just hit it off as friends. Like I could, you know, it's that sort of thing where you can tell who the musicians are in the audience. When you're sure. playing on stage, you can kind of tell in a club who the musicians are. The way that they're watching the fingers and the gear and the way they're right. pointing and talking mm-hmm. to each other, you know who the musicians are. Right. I was like, oh man, these guys look my age, look like they would be my friends. I can tell they're musicians. Why don't I know them? They must be from out of town. So right. after the set, Theo and Jack, and I don't remember who else was there at the time, came up and introduced themselves we hit it off, became great friends, eventually started jamming a lot together. And then it just kind of all bubbled into friendship leading into playing more together and then kind of becoming a part of the band and that sort of thing. So yeah, it's it's funny because I think Jack, who's the band leader of Wolfpack, his initial intention was for it to be an internet band. Yeah. And it was just a is a YouTube act. I remember the first couple uh sessions that i ever did with wolfpack he's like all right guys let's remember we're a youtube act we're not a band we're a youtube act (laughs) (laughs) it's funny just because that's a good mindset to get in before that's inspiration for you yeah it's like it's a different like it's like oh yeah we're making a record but at the same time it's there's video and that's so much that's a big part of it you know and jack has had a vision for the band from the beginning and then eventually the popularity started to just grow and grow and grow and people wanted to see it live and starting a few years ago, started touring a lot more. Right. And then 
you know, our, our last gig that we played was in September, which was at Madison Square Garden. So it's like, it's grown and grown from... Not one night. This, yeah. No, it was uh, just one night. Was it one night? I thought it you was, did Yeah, it was only one night. night. Oh, no, I'm really But it was sold out. <laughs> Wait, now you're not signed. You don't have a manager. Or, I mean, what are... I mean, how does this happen? The internet. The internet's amazing. God, and I think also just like... Good music. Yeah, that. And we have... Joe Dart, who's like the best bass player of our generation. By the way, please tell him I'm a huge fan, would you? I will. Please yeah. tell him that. He's he's a bad dude. And just so many, it, there's a band of characters. You know, it's like we're all our own kind of character on our instruments, but also in real life in a yeah. funny and cool way. And yeah. you have Jack, who is a visionary. And, you know, we... the. The Billboard and Rolling Stone articles are like, this band sold out Madison Square Garden without a manager. It's like, yeah, but Jack also really is the manager of the band. Aha, okay. And, you know, we don't have a traditional management thing or and there's no label, but Jack runs Wolf Records, which is its own independent thing hmm. with only Wolfpack and Fearless Flyers on it. I had the opportunity earlier this summer to talk to my family, the Peterson family, right here in the basement where we all grew up playing music and we still play music to this day. My family talks a little bit about what it's like to be in the moment and create music in the moment. This is fascinating. When I think we were playing with a few musicians and playing the Dakota. And, and, Glenn uh, and Yes, and then the Lemington and Glenn and Lee and, and, and then, it, then it was Bobby. And so anyway... This incredible trio, and I was really learning, and Billy was teaching me by going, listen to Ernestine Anderson, listen to Nancy Wilson, listen, and we did, growing up, have that as influences what, in the what house. what mom and dad listened to. Well, yeah, yeah but not Ernestine, and so she no. had a pocket that I was like, oh, Smoke. I get this, Portland, you know, yeah. and then Ooh. at 31, I just had my third kid, and I was singing a lot of jingles, just starting to get into that business as a young adult, and uh, quite honestly... I was hired for my soulful voice. But as a result, I found that there was a studio out in the western suburbs where they we could record something live mm -hmm. in the studio. And I called you. I remember being in the parking lot going, hey, we could record live in this studio. What do you think? So you put together... <laughs> you put together. Don't throw me in that briar patch. Oh my goodness! Kenny Horse, David Hazeltine, Kenny on drums, David no. Hazeltine on piano. You, Iris Sullivan. Now no. that was the first session, mm -hmm. and it was one day, two or three takes at a time. And you said go, and I went, what? No. And it's so interesting because when I talk about that now, this many years, decades later, it's I still do do some of those arrangements. <laughs> and it's because sure. it was in the moment creativity, and right. he yeah. just said, oh, yeah. "Trust yourself. Just go. Just oh. do it." I like it when you get when you're not on your center. Yeah, when you hang you're, yourself, you when you right exactly. When uh, you recover, it's the best stuff you'll ever do. <laughs> yeah, I'll never forget that. And I went. It's a good teaching, man. Oh yes, that's and, a good teaching. Yeah. And it, and I remember Ben Sidran saying, "You get the. We would do some of them were one takes, mm -hmm. and we just kept them. Some of them were two takes, and Sidran always said." Make sure that if you're doing something live, please honor the fact that your most character is going to be on the first or second take. 
Oh, and it was like I lived with stuff that I in the studio wouldn't have had to have lived solos, with. anything like that. Yeah, you yeah, know, right. Any of that kind of thing always gets off on the first take. Right. Well, right. Mm. yes. Because then you go in and you go, well, second well, guess I can it. Fix that. Yeah. They're probably fake. No, they no fake. Sidron is yeah. like, no, hold up. You're not. He's the greatest at that. Right. Yep. So yeah. it was a real humbling <laughs> learning experience about. for sure. Let's take a little break from the podcast because I want to talk to you about Patreon. What's Patreon? It's a way for you to enter in and help us out here on Music on the Run. There's a couple of different tiers you can join us at, and you can get all that information on patreon.com forward slash music on the run podcast. Anyone who signs up to Patreon right now with an annual subscription We'll also get a 10% discount over doing it monthly. And if you come in right now, we're having a one-year anniversary special, you will get a Music on the Run hoodie. Now look at this thing. Uh, those of you listening, you'll have to go check it out on the website. But it's, it's a beautiful, high-quality sweatshirt. So those of you who are already sponsoring us at the $10 level, we say thank you. You can also switch to the annual subscription to save that 10%, and we'll throw in a hoodie. But we're only shipping in the lower 48 states. Sorry, my friends in Australia, Japan, Europe. Hey, those of you who are already sponsoring us in the lower tiers as well, it's a really good time for you to upgrade to the $10 level uh, and that annual subscription and get the free hoodie. Uh, But if you can't do that, we will be offering this to you, this sweatshirt, for a discount. It's totally unique to our patrons who sign up and financially help us. You know, it takes a lot to put on the show, and we're happy to do it. And we're honored that we can keep going like this. But this is the way you can enter in. You can't get this anywhere else. Go to www.patreon.com forward slash music on the run podcast for all the details. Limited time offer, so hurry up and get over there. Now let's get back to the podcast. This next clip features my dear friend Kat Dyson, who I had the pleasure to play with in Donnie Osmond's band and the Donnie and Marie show as well uh, about 20 years ago. I had her explain what it's like to be a woman in the music business. I come from a musical family, but of strong men and women. My mother, whom you mentioned earlier, Jeannie Arlen Peterson, single mom, raising her. Uh, three boys and two girls after my father passed when he was 48, a musician having to take care of, you know, I was four. My brother was 10. Patty's 14. Linda and Billy are out of the house. But being a woman in the music business, how has that journey been for you? Well, I mean, you and I have a similar type of story. My dad was 40 when he was widowed with seven kids. I was 11, and my baby sister was three. Whoa. She's a nurse practitioner now. She's Dr. Maria Holmes. Mm-hmm. She's the superstar. I'm just trying to hang with her. <laughs> I love so, her. So because I was kind of put in a leadership position before I even knew what that meant, um, I, I, I was forced. Um, to mature maybe quicker than most. And I was 5'10 by the time I was 12. So 
I was playing in clubs at 13 and lying and telling them I was 18. As long as I didn't drink or right. do anything legal, I didn't, you know, I wasn't into drugs or anything like that. So I was able to kind of just do it. I just wanted to play. My mom bought my first guitar, and within a year, she was gone. Wow. So um, having it in my hand helped me not miss her so much, helped me grieve when I did miss her. And she said, you can do this. You can do whatever you want. I was playing piano. I was uh, singing in every choir. I was doing all of that stuff while she was alive. So guitar was the fun thing to do because I had to take piano lessons, which for me weren't all that much fun. <laughs> right. That's why I'm not a great piano player. Uh-huh. Uh, um, but um, uh, so I just wanted to play. And I just want, and you know, I had four brothers, so I was used to the male dynamic. So as long as they saw the guitar before they saw me, I just didn't really, I never, I don't know how to play, put this, but I didn't really put a lot on my sexuality because I was tall, female, but I grew up a tomboy playing all the sports with my brothers because I was pretty much their babysitter. So I played basketball, baseball, you know, you know, it's like, okay, she's one of the Dyson kids, you know. So I was tall and lanky, right. not really buxing or anything to look at. And I just wanted to keep playing, mm. you know. Um, and I really didn't focus so much on, hi, I'm the girl. I was just like, <laughs> hey, fellas. <laughs> I was like, hey, fellas, you know, I can play this part. And, you know, right. I had a lot of, you know, blowback. A lot of folks would just come up and put their head next to the amp to make sure I was playing. Because in a lot of bands in Virginia... You know, we didn't even have the money to buy keyboards or anything. So most bands had two guitar players. Hmm. And, um, you know, I learned a lot of the keyboard parts. So a lot of stuff on rhythm guitar for our, you know, lead player to float. And then we had some horns and, you know, we, we all that average white band, Tower Power, James Brown with the two guitar players, you know, Beatles with the, you know, multiple guitar players, all that two guitar player stuff. I kind of learned how to do, and people just kind of got used to, oh, yeah, that's that Dyson girl. <laughs> and, you know, like I said, I didn't, I didn't, when I had, when I had the bikini body, I wasn't really into showing the bikini body, because I mm. wanted them to see that I could play. Sure. And, you know, I didn't, and, and you know, and I'm, I'm not downplaying or by any means criticizing how, you know, women uh, dress or present their art. I think you should do that according to your personality. But because I was put in that position, you know, my fashion was secondary. And I'm sure you can go back and find some pictures that uh, show that. This next clip is so cool. My buddy Sinbad came into town. We were both working on the Starkey Hearing Foundation gala he was hosting, and I was doing some music. And he came over late night, and we were just hanging, talking about music. And, of course, he did the podcast that night. But he is a, a really, really, really good musician. So he wanted to learn how to play a little bit of Minneapolis sloppy bass. So I figured I'd pick up the bass and, and show him a few things. And since that time, I don't know if you know this, but Sinbad has had a stroke. Sinbad, we're praying for you. We love you. We're uh, believing for a complete recovery for you. We love you. And we'll see you back very, very, very soon. Check out this clip. (laughs) Go ahead, Sinbad. 
what it is. That, Dude. Sheila E. and I go back 35 years, and I had the opportunity to speak with her over Zoom about her relationship with Prince. You did a lot more playing with Prince than I did. Do you look back on that as being a fun period in your life? Oh, heck yeah. Yeah, we had a blast. Well, I mean, I met Prince in 77. Right? I didn't know that. Yeah, right when he started his first record, he came mm. to the Bay Area to do his first record and uh, and then played the Circle Star Theater, which was in San Francisco slash San Carlos, uh, in, the, in San Francisco. So, um, uh, you know, to go see him playing, it was the first time, you know, I mean, I had heard about him for... For so long, uh, I mean, I'd say for so long, it wasn't that long because my dad was in Santana and they were in the same studio. So, um, and there was this buzz happening. It's funny because Andre and I, I heard him talking about it when I was, I interrupted that Zoom call that happened with all. Oh, right. And and we had never talked about it, but there was a buzz going. I was like, I want to meet Prince, you know. So it was 1977 um, that I met him and I, we became friends instantly and he started coming to San Francisco and the Bay in Oakland just to visit me. He would stay in San Francisco and I'd go pick him up. Then I just showed him everything about Oakland. You know, my uh, my favorite donut sandwich, yep. uh, movie theater, like the, uh, the, the lake, you know, in, in Berkeley where people are jamming. Like how I grew up watching everyone play and he just loved it. You know, he wanted to be in the same studio as Sly. Yeah, and his Carlos, and he he loved Bay Area musicians, so it started from there. Yeah. Wow, yeah. So here we are. Well, let's fast forward to today, and 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 of course, Prince is gone, which is unbelievably tragic. Is it hard to be an MD when you have to do a tribute to to Prince like the Grammys? You can't win for losing because you can't include the world. You just can't. I mean, it, it, that's got to be incredibly difficult, those decisions that you have to make. And maybe you don't have to make them all. I'm sure that you had directors breathing down your neck going, yeah, no, much be better for ratings if we did this and that. Uh, is, is that hard for you to make those decisions? Because I, I, and I must be. Well, um, I, I was asked to come in initially um, um before uh, they had already made a bunch of decisions. So um, I came in in the middle or a little towards the beginning of it. Um, and so there were decisions made. And yes, I mean, it is about ratings. And, you know, um, you know, there was only so much, my hands were tied. And there's only so much that you can do. I mean, it's, right. it's so hard. Like, I'm still reaching out to people to you know, let them know. I mean, I actually did reach out to as many as I could during the time and just saying, look, it's not going to happen. I tried and I did, you know, um, and it's, it's unfortunate, but at the same time, um, he Prince touched so many lives, you know, and he had so many different bands and who came in and out of the bands in those periods in which he had changed who he was as well and what he looked like and what the music was about and what he wanted to talk about. And so each band had a theme and, and he was influenced by those people as well that were in, in the band. So, um, you know, there were a lot of us, there were a lot of us that were influenced when we influenced him, he influenced us. And, uh, you know, I, I, I would hope that one day we could all get together and really do something. That was my 
dream and desire a long time ago for all of us to do something. And, um, you know, maybe one day we can. Well, I have to tell the people who are listening or watching that Sheila is responsible for getting the band, the family back together at your first, was it called? It was was Elevate Hope or what was it then? It was Elevate Hope back then. Yeah. So that was, I can't even remember the year, but we played the forum and it was such a celebration and a reunion of sorts. It was. To to get everybody back. It's unreal. Yeah, no, that was incredible actually. um, Because that was the first time, like, I, I wanted the revolution to come back together and play and also the family. And then I had asked Morris. Morris didn't want to do it, but I, I think Jerome came. He did. Uh, yeah. He was Jerome, there. Yeah. Oh yeah. Because then he went part of you guys. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Jerome came uh, and then we did Madhouse. We did part of Madhouse. Yeah. Uh, we, we had Apollonia, Jill Jones, Carmen mm-hmm. Electra, Patty LaBelle, Shaka. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had so many people, and then we we wanted to make this a fa- we called it a family jam, right? And we actually had uh, Cubby mixing, which is the guy who he mixed all of the Purple Rain tour. We had um, Roy Bennett doing the lights. We had uh, all the people behind the scenes and the managers, the road managers, um, people who assisted as many people as we could have from the whole. Purple Rain Tour was a part of that event. And it was, man, to see everybody, that was amazing. Yeah. What a joy that was. Gosh, that was amazing. And to, not only to see anybody, everybody, but to, to uh, rekindle old friendships, to listen to that great music. Yeah. It was unbelievable. These guys are so near and dear to my hearts. It's the group The Family, also known as F Deluxe. And unfortunately, we haven't been able to do a gig in a year but we're looking forward to coming back out. But we had the chance to sit down via Zoom and talk about how the group, the family, was created. Eric, how are you? How are you? How did you get notified? I know your brother, Alan, was in the fold, obviously, but did he just call you on the phone and say, hey? Yeah, that was basically it. You know, um, I was living in Atlanta, um, not really doing too much. I had left Pittsburgh where most of my career had been based since the beginning, really. Um, And Alan called and just said, uh, he's putting this new band together and he wants a saxophone. And my response was, I don't think so. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, I mean, you you know, what's the music going to be? Look, you have to understand something. I was not into Prince. Right. Other than a few of his songs that I may have heard and liked, but I had one album of his, didn't much care for it, other than maybe one song. Um, there was nothing about the idea of it that had any interest to me, basically, other than the fact that finally I realized, you know something? I need a gig. And I had no illusions or expectations about what it was going to be. Uh, I came up to Minneapolis basically to do a recording session. And for me, that might have been the, sum, the complete sum total of it. Um, Alan had told me that he, Alan had played for Prince some recordings of mine, you know, probably my, my band in Pittsburgh or whatever. And Prince was sufficiently impressed to say, let's bring him up here to do the session. But 
to whatever degree Prince heard something that he thought might be a value, that didn't guarantee that once we got in the studio that anything was going to really work. You know, I mean, he, you know, I could have gone in there. He might have said to me, he said, Erica, thank you so much for coming. I don't think this is what I'm looking for. Or by the same token, I, I was there to just do a recording session for the guy. Do it and get, and, and get paid. And at well, the end of that, if it wasn't something that I particularly was interested in continuing, I would have gone back to Atlanta. That would have been that. Um, right. Fortunately, we, we both enjoyed the afternoon. Um, but you have to understand my, my involvement was completely incremental because once I did that session, I stuck around to hang out with Alan and mainly because I had family here. My mother was from St. Paul and I had aunts and uncles and cousins that lived here that I hadn't seen in a long time. So I came up here more to see them than, All right. you know, it was like, I'm coming to come up here. They're going to pay me to come up so I can spend some time with my family. And, oh yeah, I'm going to do a recording session with this guy and I'll get paid for it. And wow, yeah, yeah, that was basically the I, you know, I had no expectations, illusions, and also I, I did have enough understanding from Alan's involvement that this was a guy that can change his mind like we change underwear, right? Of course, <laughs> yes, you know, so whatever, whatever degree, and and this was just as Purple Rain was coming out, so I mean, yeah. he had bigger fish to fry, you know, um. And, and I think Alan had already told me that the likelihood of this project was actually going to come to fruition, that it could be much as, as much of a, a year yeah. before it was ever going to be released. Yeah. And yeah. I'm thinking, well, that's a year that he can completely lose interest in this and just move on. So I had, you know, I wasn't going to, I was just going to see where this went. Right. And it went. <laughs> so you came in as, as a session musician at first, yeah. as you said, incrementally. Yeah. Being, now, uh, by the way, uh, we have a person on the line. Now, don't go anywhere. Uh, I'm speaking, speaking to the person, person who's going to come in as a guest. guest. I've hidden where he is and, and who he is from you guys. It's going to be a surprise, but just uh, that person, please hang on. Bean, so you and I are sitting in this circle. This is what I remember. In the warehouse, do you remember us sitting around when, that, when everybody had left and, and Prince came in and he said, you know, he, he told us about the family. Do you recall that at all? Kind of. I, I, I know he was impressed with, you know, you being an 18-year-old kid and you had a nice voice. He had heard you singing on the piano or something. And it was something about you that he liked. So. Not for long, though. Maybe it's that plaid jacket you're wearing. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe, maybe that's what it is. Hey, I put a suit on sort of for you. And wait, Bean, be nice. I'm wearing you. You see, see that? Yeah, I see that. Okay, all right. I'm representing you here. Oh, so I re here's what I remember: uh, you and I sitting in the warehouse in Eden Prairie, sitting around in a circle, and Prince said, "Okay, everybody left. Morris is gone. Chessie's gone. Yeah. What do you guys want to do? I'm going to form a new band, and I'm paraphrasing and trying to, you know, go into my brain." to uh, to recall this but as i remember it he said i got a new band and i want you to be the singer in it. and he pointed at me yeah, and wh yeah. whomever didn't want to do it that's cool go your own way yeah. and i think jerry hubbard was in that meeting and he ended up going with, with jesse, jesse. Yeah. and then jesse. and that was the first time i was notified about that 
Brian Ray, the great guitar player and bass player and artist, uh, sat down with me not too long ago and talked to me about how the Paul McCartney gig came about. But yeah, so Abe and I got to be very good friends while touring uh, all over France together. And at, a, at one point, about five years into those gigs, Abe was uh, about to consider coming back to France for one more gig, one more tour. I did it, and I got a call from him saying, I'm not going to go. I've got this opportunity. I'm going to be playing. I've got an album with Paul McCartney. Like, what? <laughs> Can you just not wash your hand? Yeah, exactly. By that time, you'll have shaken his hand, and I'm going to need to shake that hand. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, so Abe does the record with Paul. I come back from France. And Abe is at a party, my, my birthday party. And I said, so, Paul McCartney, tell me more about it. And he's going, oh, my God, it was just so fun. He's so cool. He's so generous. It was great. It was very creative. It was like, oh, my God, I'm freaking out. Yeah. And I said, well, I know the other guitar player that's in it, um, Rusty, and I don't know who's going to be playing. Who's going who's gonna to play bass when he plays guitar or piano? And then... Wouldn't that person switch to guitar when he plays bass? He goes, yeah, we're looking for a guitar player who plays bass. And I said, I'd love a shot at that. Oh, well, he good on up. you, man, Ooh, for speaking up. Like he hadn't thought of it. And, you know, like that was the one time where I thought, I'm going to shoot my hand up in the air yep. and give it a go. And long story short, here I am. So, How many years was Sir Paul? Uh, now I've been with Paul McCartney for 19 years. Yeah. No one has a gig for 19 years, Brian Ray. No one does. What really? is up with you? It's crazy. What uh, is the, what's well, the secret of keeping? Okay. Hold on a second. First okay. of all, these are two unbelievable gigs. Yes. G getting the gigs is one thing. Keeping the gigs is something completely different. Oh, we all know that. It's so true. Well, you know, all I can say is the four of us in the band behind Paul, that's Wicks on keyboards and musical director, um, Abe, uh, Rusty, and myself, have all been there the same amount of time as a band. Now, Wicks was there years before as well, starting in 89, I think. Wow. Uh, so we were lucky enough to have somebody who before Paul joined us for the first rehearsals uh, knew where sort of the bones were, you know, in these performances and what to do. So Wix was able to sort of, you know, lay it out for us and help us as we learned the songs for five days before Paul got there to join us for just six more days before our first gig. Literally, that's how fast it was. Tell me a little bit about the rehearsal and, and uh, what you had to do before Paul came in. Yeah, so fortunately, as I was saying, so fortunately, Wicks, having been there before on keyboards, could help lead us through the first few days of rehearsal before Paul arrived. So we had five days of rehearsal as a four-piece band learning 45 songs before Paul came in to play for six more days, and then we were on tour. That Jeez. was it. And... um 
you know, it was a lot and it was exciting. It was thrilling. It was scary. I didn't really allow myself to call anybody and tell them I had the gig with Paul McCartney until that sixth day with yeah. him where he said, okay, guys, sounds great. See you tomorrow. Then I was like, oh my God, I think I'm going on tour. You got the gig. Yeah. And uh, then, then it's all like you were saying before, it's like then keeping the gig becomes the thing. And that's, I guess, mostly about, you know, fitting in and establishing trust and having fun. And uh, I don't know, you know, being, uh, being fun to be around, being a good hang, you know? Yeah. Because you get, well, you guys play what, two and a half, three hours, but the other 21 hours, you're, you're not on stage and you got to, you have to be able to be compatible with these people, whether you're on the tour bus, bus or the jet or whatever the case may be on whatever tour at any level, it really truly is about the hang and in your ability to kind of find your way through that, isn't it? Yeah, it's true. I mean, and you don't get to be in a, any group for 19 years without some kind of friction here and there. And I'm not saying there hasn't been because, mm -hmm. you know, we're four grown men with uh, varying degrees of strong opinions, you know, and, and behaviors and stuff. And you're right. It, it, sometimes it's close quarters, but at least on tour, you know, we each have our own room so you can slide away and, and we're not playing six nights a week because it's Paul. So right. it's more like, you know, three. So you really do have quite a lot of four, let's say four nights a week. Yeah. Uh, you, you have quite a lot of time um, away from the pod. And, and that's how you restore your energy. Got it. So do you, do you consider yourself the bass player in this band or you get to do it all? I, I, I'm a guitar player, of, of course, and I learned to play bass better uh, because I, that was the job description is to be a guitar player who played some bass rather than a bass player who played some guitar, right? So yeah. I would just say I'm the guitar player who plays stunt bass and picked up a little <laughs> bass here and there. Stunt bass. I end up playing, you know, 60% of the show on bass because yeah. he plays whatever he wrote the song on or whatever he's comfortable playing live. And so most of the time he wasn't writing songs in the Beatles on bass. Yeah. That's just what he played when they played live. Right. Um, and all of his solo stuff was either piano or guitar centered when he wrote as, as far as I know. Um, so it would default to me playing bass because he's going to be on piano or he's going to be on guitar or mandolin or ukulele or, Whatever, you know, so I've just got to be ready to play whatever he's not playing. You're the utility man. And so, so it is, it, so is he, because he can do it all. You can do it all. What a blast. Well, he does it all a little more than I do, but, uh, quite a bit. I mean, wow. Paul McCartney, you know, what an incredible, uh, what an incredible gift to humanity. Paul McCartney is. Very early on in Music on the Run podcast, we had a chance to sit down with Kevin and Michael Bacon. They came to my studio. We had the opportunity to make it look really groovy and set up lights for these rock stars. And uh, we talked about 
what it's like to make music with family. <laughs> That's a good way to describe it. Um, right, and 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 in my case, my mother was kind of an old lady by the time I was born. Um, Mine too. Actually. You're really? the youngest. I'm the youngest. I'm the yeah. youngest. You're the youngest. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. I know uh, a little bit about being it. a little brother. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and um, you know, Michael uh, was a. Uh, was kind of always a musician. Um, and um, so I grew up uh, listening to him writing songs, playing in bands, oh. practicing. Um, I, I, I think our mother, although I've never really had this confirmed, I think our mother was very, very um, adamant that you become a musician, right? Do you think she was really I, instrumental in that or not so oh, much? Definitely instrumental just because um, she got me a cello and a teacher when I was, I think, about five. Right. And that was a formative experience because I can remember when the cello came into our house, what room it was, what the lacquer smelled like. All right. And since that time, musical instruments have always been completely magical. So to be here today, I just, I'm just like a kid. I want to you know, touch them all. Right, yeah. exactly. Yeah, but um, I, I don't think our parents ever really wanted to point us any particular direction, maybe our dad a little bit. Uh, I know that when I dropped out of college, I was a fraternity guy in Weezins and the Khakis, and then all of a sudden went into a, a hippie band and um, a total <laughs> life changed. And I, my father was really disappointed until the band started to become successful. I think that they both wanted success for us. Of course, don't all parents. Yeah. It's interesting that you say that they would bring a cello into the house. Was that more of a... Since they weren't musicians proper, correct? No. Not even un- improper. Okay, so <laughs> they, they definitely they, weren't musicians. So they bring the cello into the house just for for exploration, for a cultural reason. Why the cello? I think because they love music, and um, they saw that I maybe had an aptitude for it and an interest in the instruments. Hmm. Um, I think I actually played a C sax before that. I had a lesson uh, with this beautiful teenage girl and somehow in my lesson her thumb got caught in a drawer <laughs> what yes i got and, to write another song <laughs> and i just it just was kind of traumatic and that was the end of the c sax so wow. then when the cello came in it was it, i had that seed already planted and the thing that's interesting especially looking at your place here is our dad was trained as an architect. He, he became a city planner. So our house on Locust Street, the whole downstairs, the, he took out all the walls and he built in basically a hi-fi system with a 18-inch Jensen speaker, Altec Lansing horn. So the whole first floor of our house was really a gigantic So speaker. they loved music. They it wasn't, loved music. They just didn't play, no. necessarily. Our mom played a little bit of Mando, but... but that's really all I really remember her playing. And mm. our, our father, we often like to say that uh, when he would sing us lullabies, <laughs> we would pretend to be asleep. <laughs> <laughs> so we'd be finished. Thank yeah. you, Dad. Right. Bye-bye. See ya. <laughs> what about your brothers and sisters, for the, uh, uh, the rest of them? You, you, you're six, is that right? Six, yeah. And four four girls, girls. Four girls. Two of us. Two of us. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, they, our older sister, Hilda, um, was a, a, a singer in the kind of like um, you know J- J- Joni Mitchell, Judy Collins vein. Oh, cool. She had long, beautiful, you know, teenage girl with long blonde hair and right. sang, um, you know, what's it called, Raggle Taggle Gypsies or something <laughs> like that. Yeah, folk songs, like folk songs. Yeah. Peter okay. Paul and Mary, uh, yeah. 
Brothers Four or Kingston Trio, that kind of thing. And okay. Mike, Michael had a band with her that I remember them practicing in our, our basement. And I must have been, a, I don't know, how old were you when you I had the judgment? I was 15, so I'll do the math. Yes, yeah, so six. 15, so I was... Uh, That's going to do it for this look back at year one of Music on the Run. I just want to say thank you to my producer, Davide Razzo, the Motor Crew, Ivan Sevastianov, and of course, Jake Miller, and all the guests who took time out of their busy lives to come on and share a little bit of their knowledge with us. But I really want to thank you, the fans who are listening to this podcast, those who are helping us at patreon.com. We so appreciate you, and we're doing this for you. That's the whole reason that we do this, is that we love you, and you guys keep coming back for more. So we cannot thank you enough. Again, thank you to those of you who have financially sponsored us at patreon.com forward slash music on the run podcast. We could not do this without you. It does take money to put this on. And uh, we have another offer. I want to show you. I told you about this earlier today. Those of you who sign up, the brand new uh, incentive is this beautiful hoodie. Yeah, it's a gorgeous sweatshirt, music on the run sweatshirt. And it's for you guys. It's, it's a those of you who are able to come on and, and sponsor us at Patreon, all the details are there. Thank you so much. We look forward to seeing you again. And uh, God bless you. And happy holidays. Music on the Run was hosted by yours truly, St. Paul Peterson. Edited and produced by my buddy, Davide Razzo. Video editing by Ivan Sebastianov. And a very special thanks to the people who financially support this podcast. And remember, we couldn't do this without you.